Hey folks, this is Danny. You're tuning into part two of our sit-down conversation with music artist Bometheus. If you haven't already, check out part one, as this is a direct continuation of the same interview done in the same sitting. Enjoy. Because I was teaching these super wealthy kids, I'm very catered to, mm-hmm. and um, they're not my students anymore, so I feel comfortable telling this story. Um, Can we get names, addresses? No, no, <laughs> no. I'm, no. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. Little Jeffrey. Go no, good, good. At forty nine oh seven eight. No, <laughs> Jeffrey's sitting up there at the counter and teaching his sister. I taught them both violin, and uh, and Jeffrey has been told to do his math. And he's not excited about this. And I know that because Jeffrey, every few seconds, is just making little brat noises. Oh. He's like throwing his pencil and hitting the thing yeah. and like throwing the page because he pretends to erase and he has to get down and go get it. And his mom comes in every few seconds like, Jeffrey, do your math, do your math. And then she leaves. And like, I'm just trying to teach a violin lesson this whole time. Yeah. And finally, his sister's done. And I kind of liked. Like I liked seeing this kid unhappy. Uh, <laughs> and so I used to say his name really emphatically. You know, I was like, Jeffrey, it's your turn now. <laughs> and Jeffrey, you know, is totally not excited to be there at all. And he's like, ah, and he gets down. And he like walks over and he opens his violin case and he gets his violin out. And he grabs his crumpled music uh. from his case. Like, it, this has not been practiced at all. And he walks up to the stand where, where I am. And he looks at me, and he looks at the stand, and then he just, like, raises his arm all the way back and throws the piece of paper at the stand, and it just kind of flits and floats its way down to the ground, where it lands on the carpet. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, wondering what in the world is going on. (laughs) And then he proceeds to back up and throws himself upon the couch behind him. But as he's making contact with the couch... His mom comes around the corner, and it's too late. He's already committed to gravity. And she sees him sitting, and me just standing there like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. And she's like, Nicholas, what are you doing? And he, like, so fast is, like, trying to get up. And he's like, and he just sounds like a little South Park hair. He's like, I was trying, I was trying to get to me. I was trying to so hard, ma'am. You don't understand. And she's just yelling, like, no, no. Jeffrey, you're not doing it. Like, all this is happening, like, literally, like, three feet away from me. They're just screaming at each other. And then she grabs his head and, like, whispers really violently and steps back. And then she goes, now what do we say to Mr. Jonathan? And I don't even say, I don't even know what we say to Mr. Jonathan. I have no idea. (laughs) You're like, what do we say to Mr. Jonathan? like, this kid's vision... His, his gnarled eyes, like, his, his grotesque grimace chiseled on his features, like, twist up to look at me. And he's, like, all of his being is shaking with how angry and unhappy he is about being there. And all he says is, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> how much joy did you get in that moment? I laughed so hard. <laughs> in front of both of them. That's so good. was not laughing at all. But I'm sorry. If your that's kid funny. is being a piece of shit and you grab him and, and that's tell what your parenting advice is to tell the right. teacher an obvious falsehood. <laughs> like you're not even you're not even apologizing for no. your reckless, you know, disgusting behavior. It's just act like it didn't happen I'm and happy act like you're happy. To be here. Jeffrey. That's good. I'm happy to be here. 
So that's such a oh gosh. That's such a powerful phrase. I love that. When, but when you're teaching, and so then sometimes when you have those kids who clearly don't want to be there, like, how do you feel about it as you're teaching them something that they just despise with their whole being? Um, I mean, it kind of is what it is. Typically, you'll win. I mean, it, it, typically, you either win a kid over and they stop. So it isn't really any skin off of mine back. Do you usually win them over by you or by the content? Uh, typically, it's the content, um, but the majority of the time, especially with younger kids, it's I've never had to work hard a day in my life, and suddenly music is demanding a lot of me, yeah. and I'm not used to that, and that's uncomfortable, and I definitely don't want to do it. Mm. And so there's really nothing I can do about that because there's no magic. Like, mm-hmm. what we do in 30 minutes once a week or once every two weeks, like... That's not where yeah. it happens. It yeah, happens right. at home, and like you just have to be consistent. Like you don't even have to do a lot. At least five minutes a day, consistently every day in a row. Like you'll be fine. Right. It's mm-hmm. all masking. Like, I don't even ask that much mm-hmm. because I mean, quite frankly, it's proven that the students that you don't ask a lot of sometimes actually are more consistently capable mm-hmm. if they don't feel like they. And, and that's the thing is like you have so many teachers that demand like thirty minutes to an hour of practice. Well. Most kids can't focus on, most adults can't focus on anything yeah, for 30 minutes to an hour. And if you're making yourself do it and you're not focusing anymore, you're actually just doing bad things. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah, actively yeah. committing detrimental things. Yeah, like practice does not make perfect. No. It just makes permanent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you might make something permanent that yeah. is definitely not perfect. That was good. It's not I, original. I know. I, know I it, it felt not original, but I still haven't heard that. I've never heard that though. <laughs> Destroy! <laughs> I didn't mean to say it like that. No, it's, you said it so fluidly that I was like, okay, this is something. But I've never heard that before. That's really good. I need to use that. Have you ever, in the kids that you're <laughs> teaching, has there ever been a moment where you've like seen a little bit of yourself in the kids that you're teaching, or not even not even a little bit? Like myself now, or myself as a kid? Because like, as yes. a kid, I didn't want to be there either. So yeah. like, for me, there's frequently <laughs> times where I'm like, oh man, oh, I just feel so bad for Marla right now. Right. <laughs> it was my teacher when I was, you know. Three, oh, okay, four, okay, so okay. Yeah, you know, um, but no, I haven't really come across a student that strikes me as, where I was like, oh, I really, I relate to the you, you know. Mm-hmm. Most of them is just like, yeah, you don't like working hard, do you? <laughs> Guess what? It's the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Really really um, you were talking about how you were exposed especially to classical music growing up. Oh, yeah. So when was the transition uh, out of classical music, and what would you say uh, inspires you the most now? Not necessarily your favorite music, but what music do you listen to, and you're like, oh, freak, I gotta write. I gotta write right now. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. There's definitely... Like, where yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like, I wouldn't call... I talk to this guy all the time. I wouldn't call, like, Jacob Collier one of my favorite artists, but every time I listen to him, I'm like, God damn, it's so interesting. I need to write now. I need to. Huh. Really? He does that for you? Yeah, for some reason. Whoa. Was that some POV oh, in that oh, statement? He definitely uh, judgment there. Yeah, but, like, it's yeah. just because he's throwing so many ideas at you at once that I'm like... Yeah, to me, it's intellectual masturbation. That's so funny. There's well, so, that sounds so like many math, people. though. Really? There are so many people. There are so many people that I know, music makers specifically, that have that exact same opinion. That are like, this is a guy that just 
knows some things and is trying to prove that he knows them. Right. And so, like, um, to me, every once in a while, he'll have something really interesting. But for the most part, when I think Collier's at his best is, like, when he's doing a really clever reharmonization of someone else's material. Mm-hmm. His material is just... I mean, it's it's like... I finally... Recent, in the past like few years, at some point, I was in New York City in Times Square, and I hated it with like all of my being because it was mm-hmm. just overload and so much. I mean, screens everywhere and all these people and mm-hmm. no one's looking at anyone and no one cares about anything. That's how I feel. Oh, okay, to okay. Collier. It's just like, shh, okay. You're just adding shit. For you the know notes. That's cool. I guess. Right. What are you trying to say? Because as far okay, as I'm yeah. aware, you're not actually saying anything. Right. So, have, have you ever seen anything of his, uh, like, interviews or, like, the... He does master classes. Yeah, all I time. saw... I, I mean, I've seen that video where he, like, explains music theory to a kid and about it. And, uh, yeah. Like Is there any part of you, as you're watching that, that you're like, Is this guy really going to represent music theory? Uh, I'm okay with that, because okay. I have a really low opinion of music theory. Like, that's why, like, okay. Lively... The uh-huh. the theory professor at SMU. Yeah. He was my favorite theory professor at SMU because mm-hmm. he took himself exactly as as seriously as someone who teaches music theory at SMU should. Mm. Which was not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and but I liked that he had the decency and honesty to mm-hmm. just do that. Uh-huh. Most of them are like, well, I've studied what such and so, and so I know how to regurgitate such and so ideas right. that have been around for four hundred years that I will now regurgitate. This mindless nonsense that actually, much like academia in general, has very little to do with reality or yeah. anything that happens off campus. Yeah. And so when you go out into the real world... It's all theory, no practice. Start, yeah. yeah. And, and, and most of the theory you learn actually has very little to do... Why are we learning performance practice from box era? Why are we learning rules based in box music? Do you know how long it's been since anyone wrote box music? long time. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no reason to be learning this shit. Yeah. None. Maybe like for a week because it's like, hey, this is funny. <laughs> Doesn't right. work. Okay, so let's... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, but the interesting part should be, or what they should be doing is, this is how it could potentially apply to you. Right. And this is why we do not do it do Exactly. Anymore. Yeah. But they, they don't. do that. <laughs> and so, to me, I mean, Collier's cool because he, he does know a lot and he knows a lot about how theory works today. Like, he's someone who obviously knows the kind of theory that we should have been taught in school. Everyone should be capable of doing what Jacob Collier does. That's a hot take, but I, I appreciate that. shouldn't be special. Yeah. Because what he's doing actually isn't that special. Yeah. He just knows things. Yeah. Anyone can know things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He just has two world-class musician parents that well, taught him from... But also, he studied with Herbie Hancock and right, everybody right. else. Like, he has all... Like, he has the... He has the grounding and, and the, the real, uh, not the real, the classical theory, I suppose. But then he also has the jazz theory. The jazz theory, you know, mastered, mm-hmm, <laughs> ironically mm-hmm. enough, white theory. <laughs> and then it was like, let's make this much better, please. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, it's fine. He's fine. I'm not, I, it's not like I don't want Jay Porter to right. exist. I'm just not going to listen. Sure. I'm probably not going to listen to him. Yeah. And when I do, I'm just kind of like, why? Right. Turn it off. <laughs> and it's not like the yeah right. So so who who does inspire you? Who do you listen to and you're like, jeez, I need to write right now. Um. When I'm actually writing, 
like lyrics or I'm also trying to work on a book right now because um, like they're all the ideas <laughs> so but maybe it doesn't just he he didn't just start as like a funny character it was like I have a lot of fucked up thoughts in my head that I've got to get out of here and so mm-hmm. I started writing them down mm-hmm. and then I started singing them <laughs> but not all of them you can sing mm-hmm. and so I have like 50 pages of things that you can't sing, and so it will be a book eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I'm writing, I listen to like Frank Zappa and Beefheart and like all this crazy out there music that I would never listen to. Yeah. Or even publicly endorse. So please wipe. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's so cacophonous and strange. Right. And so alien to any of my sensibilities that I can actually, like, think because it doesn't distract me at all or get me excited. Sure. That's interesting. So you listen to the exact opposite of inspiration Yeah, music. all of my activities. Because, like, if, yeah. Yeah. Um, when I've had a really hard day and I need to not, I just need something, I listen to Enya or Jack Johnson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was not expecting that. Yeah, no. Jack Johnson is my... I love my, the Jack Johnson! I know. Jack Johnson's my Sunday morning shit. Yes! Yeah. And I'm not talking about banana fucking pancakes. No, 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 no. I'm talking about, like, To the Sea. Um, he's got a couple records that are just great. Mm-hmm. They're just great. They are so pleasant. If pleasant yeah. made a noise, it's that. It's Jack Johnson, yeah. right. Uh, and Enya's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you guys know Enya? I do not. You're looking at me with very judgment eyes. Okay. I mean, but now, but now I know. Now I know. Right. So, Enya, um, I think is, if not the highest, one of the highest selling recording artists of all time. Woof! I'm just she's, uncultured. But she's never toured. Okay. Which is also one of the crazy cool things. She lives in a castle in Ireland. Christ. And she um, interweaves Celtic music. Sometimes she sings in Latin. Like, it's incredible stuff. It's really very mm-hmm. fun. And she's one of the first um, artists to do a lot of layering of her own voice. Yeah. And so there are tracks of hers, I mean, all the way back to, like, the 90s or maybe even the 80s, where there's, like, over 200 vocal tracks of just her voice on a mm-hmm. single song. So she was kind of one of the pioneers for that kind of thing, like bedroom pop, like that. Yeah. Enya started it. Yeah. You know? We talked um, a bunch about bedroom pop. Yeah. yeah. Enya also, like, I don't know if you guys are into, like, Lord of the Rings, but, like, mm. a couple of the Lord of the Rings movies, um, the credit song is, is Enya. Mm. See? So, like... This, this is going to sound like a joke, but I actually found Enya with my siblings as we were uh, in a Target. You know how, like... Way back when in Target they had those like little panels, you know what I'm talking about? When next to the CDs where you would like press for demos and everything. And, <laughs> and that's how these like it. headphones that were always yeah. like indecrepit, had COVID nineteen all over. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's where it started. If anywhere, that's where it started. So you put the yes, yeah, so you put the things on and you start listening to everything. And I remember like like tapping through like you know. I don't even think Michael Bublé was a thing at the time, but sure, you know, sure. it's yeah, still very yeah. similar. You're like, whatever. And then he comes on, I'm like, whoa, what's that? Exactly. Yeah, I'm that like, oh my gosh, yeah. No, it's incredible stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, one of my friends uh, back in Seattle one time just listened to her entire discography, which is huge. And he took his headphones off at the end and he was like, 
She never wrote a bad song. Just <laughs> 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 as like objective that's fact, so good. Videos, that's she never so wrote good. a bad song, which I think might be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't listen to her whole discography, but I mean, some of her stuff is pretty incredible. Um, so that stuff when I'm super sad. There's st- I still come back to Mozart. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The Requiem, the. He has this. <laughs> I was talking to my Uncle Ben a couple weeks ago, and uh, Mozart has a mass in C minor called the Grossa Messa, or it's the big mass. Oh, okay. And my Uncle Ben was like, Yeah, dude, like, uh, do you listen to the Gross Mess? I, I really love the Gross Mess. I don't know. <laughs> it's just like underground indie thing, the Gross Mess. That's good. Nobody knows it anymore, but the Gross Mess is one of Mozart's best works. I don't know. <laughs> the Gross Mess. Little thing. Man, okay. So I, yeah, so um, I, I, I do go back to Mozart frequently. What, some of his piano concertos, the 20th and the 21st in particular, I really, really like those. And then um, some of his symphonies I really, really like. Um, but I haven't actually listened to those. Uh, the 29th in A major, I really like that one. Um, but it all kind of comes and goes. I had a massive Muse kick for a long time. Oh, yeah. The band Muse? Yeah, Muse, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Like uh, coming, I'd say going into high school, uh-huh. um, I listened to music. That sounds about that right. Sounds about no, like, I think I, like, I, think I went through that too. I think we're all in the same boat of think, right yeah. into high school. Let's just listen to a little bit of Butterflies and Hurricanes yeah. and just have a good time. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, God. Oh, and God. as I've gotten older, my tastes have obviously grown. And, sure. And so you come back and look at music and you're like, you, you're like, why Muse? You wrote those lyrics, Matthew. Oh, right, why right. did you do that? Well, that, funny enough, okay. Like proof that you don't have to have good poetry. <laughs> yeah right 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 yeah those that 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 poetry really needed the music like just it like you really, said really it really needed the music yeah and they did deliver that they, yeah and hey yes. as long as you turn off your brain for a second just let it absorb you fine it's incredible the, yeah <laughs> funny enough I actually found out about Muse and I started listening to Muse because my sister when I was uh, twelve dragged me to an Owl City concert oh I know. <laughs> Wait, she wouldn't have had to drag me. That's all I'm gonna say. No, no, I was not an Owl City fan <laughs> yeah. because all like because uh, this was at the time where I was in middle school and so all of like the girls were obsessed with Owl City. Sure. And all the guys were like the girls like so we can't okay. and so. I hated Owl City. Obviously, I had to. And so we go to uh, an Owl City concert, and it's it's hitting. It's doing a pretty good job, right? They're 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 hitting. But then I saw this one like kind of like. Uh, like kind of 30s maybe like early 30s guy he's like a little overweight like totally bald already and um uh and he's just like kind of sitting next to me like seems out of it and i'm 12 so i have no yeah, yeah, yeah. perception of social cues and so i'm like you okay <laughs> and he was like you like this <sighs> you should listen to muse like that was all he said and i was like muse how do you spell that what's muse and i went home and i became a fan of muse Dude, that is like the greatest I became a fan of Muse story I've ever heard. <laughs> How many I, I became a fan of Muse stories? Like, you like this? You should listen to me. You like Owl City? There's like some overweight guy that's sweating True. profusely everywhere True he goes, that. and he goes to Owl City concerts to s- tell 12 year olds to listen to Muse. So I, I'm, I'm also curious though. It's like a Jehovah's Witness yeah. of Muse. <laughs> that's good. That's good. The, um, uh, the other I, band is Weezer. Oh, dude. So, my favorite Weezer story ever is, like, 
pretty recently because they put out two records very right. in the past year. And so they had like posted they were going to do a live show with the LA Philharmonic because um, their second to last record is all string work. Like, it's all full orchestra, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not a single electric instrument on the entire record. It's incredible. But um, they posted they were going to do these concerts, and so someone had commented right underneath the worst band in the world. And then another person commented underneath that, I know, right? I'll see you at the show. <laughs> <laughs> And if that doesn't perfectly summarize the Weezer Weeze community, yeah, like nothing else does. That's pretty good. I, I, um, I, I am curious based off what you just mentioned. The uh, how many of the instruments do you actually record on your album? Mm-hmm. Um, so are you talking about this album? Yeah, this one specifically. When I yeah. heard the saxophone, I was thinking to myself, was Jonathan playing a saxophone? <laughs> Is no. that female voice his own? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just sped it up and put it on. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so as the records have gone on, I've played less and less. Um, mm-hmm. So I do not play drums. So every all the drums you ever hear, you will, any, anywhere you hear on movies, if it's not me. Um, I don't tend to play the bass tracks. I can, but I would rather someone who knows what they're doing do that. Um, do you still write it? You just don't play it? No, and that's the other thing. I don't, um, I do not write down my stuff. I might write it like a chart, chord chart or something, yeah. but I never tell my musicians what to play. Mm. Um, because if I have to tell them, then they're not playing. Yeah, then it's like, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're the guy that we're Yeah, you're not the guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's not just that, it's that I want it to be, uh, I want whoever comes in to play to add something. Mm-hmm. That's their own. Yeah. Um, and you know, if they if they're adding something that's totally not working at all, then you know, I bring the hammer down. I'm like, don't do that. Try yeah. this. And then they try that, and then they do something better than mm-hmm. that. And yeah. and that's what it's about. It's giving them the seed, so then the seed can grow. Exactly. And and the one of the reasons I do that is because one, I only want to play with musicians. I don't want to play with instrumentalists. And two, when you're an orchestra, the thing you hear the most. From from the people around you, uh-huh. you know the oboe player and the flute players and the, the violins and children, and uh, you'll hear people like, "Oh, why did Brahms write this? What was Beethoven thinking? He doesn't know my instrument at all." And you hear that all the time, which kind of makes sense. It totally makes sense. They yeah. don't know your fucking instrument. They don't know. <laughs> right, right. And um, and so for me, I don't, I don't ever want to have to do that with someone. Yeah. I don't want some saxophone player to come in and be like, play this. Isn't yeah. That a cool idea. And they're like, that's become, dude, it doesn't work at all. That's become a more and more common thing in in theater that, that we've seen like over the past like 20 ish years is that there are so many new plays coming out, but there are very few plays in circulation that wow. people are doing consistently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And because of that, uh, so many actors are forced to interact with plays. That just don't get them excited. Like they have uh, to force their right, themselves to be excited. Right, right. And so what you, you're starting to see more, more and more now is that playwrights will. I mean, yes, there's workshopping, but playwrights will write a play, and then we'll get the actors, and then edit as much as they can to fit whoever there is in front of them. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. And I, the second that it why started happening, you do that? why exactly? Why why would you not do that? Why would you not? Why would you not? Uh, uh, 
want to actually collaborate and for the people that are working on it to actually have a good ass time. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense to like, me. Yeah. I want the people who play on my stuff to be proud of what they did. Yeah. And I want it to actually be them. Right. So that they don't have to be like, yeah, I did what he wanted. It was right. kind of dumb. Which is what every single concert has ever been in orchestra. It's like, yeah, we did what he wanted. It was kind of dumb. You yeah. know? And like, why do people pay to see this? Like, Right, right. Whereas this, it's like the MSO, everyone yeah. here wanted to be here, and what they played was really what they wanted to play, and they're mm -hmm. excited about what they played. So come listen to it, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I also don't want it to just be the me show, right? Like, or else you'd be called Jonathan Hodges. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so I, I am still writing the songs, right? And I'm still writing the music that I send to them for them to play on, um, and a lot of the people I do record. Actually, they come to my place and I record them. Uh -huh. um, but a lot of them just record their own stuff wherever they are. And, and for the new record, people were all over the country. Right. My young players in Nashville, my sister Caroline, who sang on one of the tracks, um, is in Michigan. Uh, one of the guitar players, two of the guitar players in Georgia. Like, they're all over the place. Right. Cincinnati, mm -hmm. Ohio, that's where the sax player is. Um, yeah, so I never play wind instruments. I don't do that. If you hear violin, if you hear guitar, um, voice, whistling, that kind of stuff, that's probably. Mm -hmm. I also heard you. Uh, whenever we we came in today, I heard you sizing up Audacity. What what are 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 you big into editing? I'm assuming you edit. Yeah, your I own do stuff? everything myself. So I, I mm. record, mix, and master. Um, yeah, I, but I, I, I can't size this. I, I work with GarageBand. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I was about to say, I was like, I mean, anything does the trick, right? No, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I was just kidding. Uh, and mostly it's because I know nothing about Audacity. Oh, And yeah. so, like, for me, like, I, I probably would have used the same tone if you guys were using Logic or, or if you're using... Uh, Pro Tools. I mean, they're all fine. I yeah. Just, whatever gets the job done. Yeah. And yeah. Like, if you're happy with the job, then like, yeah, then do it. Whatever. That's it. Right. How has the pandemic affected your work, if at all, and like the doing of your work? Has it been stressful at all? Has it been easier? What has it done for you? Uh, it was pretty frustrating at first. It remains frustrating. Um, because... March of last year, <clears throat> I had just started playing live shows with an organization called So Far Sounds. I don't know if you guys know about them. It's mm -hmm. a London-based uh, company that's global. Mm -hmm. They have there's a So Far in like every major city in the world, which is really cool. And the way it works is it's like these secret concerts underground. They have three to four artists on each show. People buy tickets for the date, and they know like the geographical neighborhood of the city that they'll be in, but they do not know where it will be, and they do not know who will play. Um, the artists find out a little bit more information. We found out where it will be a couple days before, and that's it. <laughs> so we don't know who else is playing either. So like, uh, I'm pretty sure very uh, no very cool. famous people have played these. So like, you might show up to one, and like Paul McCartney's there, or Adele is there, or I'm trying to... I've reached the end of the modern pop stars I know. <laughs> William Eyelash. She might be. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's a really, really cool thing, and it's very difficult to get in. Mm -hmm. And so I had been sending in my recordings, my records for like three years and never heard anything. 
and then a buddy of mine who I'd known from a couple of years ago got a show with them, and I reached out to him because I saw it somehow, and I was like, you are, do you need improv violin with what you're doing? Because I'd right. love to come play improv violin with you. And he was like, yeah, it sounds great. So we did it, and then I like kind of got close to the guy running it, and I was like, I wrote this song called Tornadoes in Dallas, and it was like right after, like, can I play it at the end? And he was like, yeah. And they have a, they have a rule, which mm-hmm. is if you've played a So Far show, you are now a So Far artist. And if you're a So Far artist, you wow. have precedence, and you get more shows. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I got to play, and, uh, and then they hooked me up, and I got my first show, and I played to over 75 people. It was packed. And it went really well, and they booked me for like two more, and then COVID shut everything down. <laughs> oh, and it was so great because it was seventy-five people I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. And it, they're very intimate shows. Yeah. Like you have a 30, 20 minutes. It's like seventy-five it's, people that want to be. I, there. Yeah, ideally it is unbiased people. Because, right. Yeah. That yeah, who actually are looking to listen. And the music. rules of these shows: no talking. That's awesome. So everyone that's there paid a lot of money to be there and they want to be there. They want to interact and That's connect awesome. to every four's dream. <laughs> and so, right. And then it all got shut down. So, um, and it hasn't come back. So oh. that, that was very sad and disappointing because it was like, I'm finally doing it. You know, like I have the whole discography. I've recorded all the records. I have all the songs and now I get to really like play it in front of people's mm-hmm. faces rather than just scream into the void of the internet. Uh, so that was disappointing. But, on the other hand, I got married in 2020, um, yeah. May, and so we got to start our life together um, in, on some level, like a less stressful yeah. environment. Like, we actually just got to hang out a bunch, which I, I don't want this to sound like I'm indifferent to the suffering of others. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of suffering that took place. We yeah. did suffer. There was some very sad stuff that happened, but... Um, you know, there was um, there was a lot of nice stuff, too. There was, like, kind of hidden in there. And so it gave me also all the time I needed to record the record. So I'd right. been writing all the songs, and I hadn't recorded any of it, and now I had all this time. I could just record it. I didn't need mm-hmm. to drive anywhere. And go. I could just tie all my students online. And mm-hmm. So there, there was nice stuff and sad stuff. Um, I guess, like, there is for anybody from last year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Um but yeah, I it didn't. I mean, I wrote a song called "Goodbye COVID 19 But yeah. other than that, it didn't really um, particularly interact with the songwriting. Um, most of the stuff going on in our lives that the record is actually about was completely divorced of the trauma, the mm-hmm. the international trauma of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were they written during that time? Some of them were, and some of them were written far in advance. I see. Like Tornadoes in Dallas. Right, so that's written a few days after the tornadoes touched down in October of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a little ways back to be on a 2021 record. Right. Especially because I released a record in 2020. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you're like, I'm just going to keep this one. Yeah, we're yeah. not on that one. Right, right. I think I released it early to just prove that, see, I wrote it a few days after. Look how real. <laughs> I remember that. I remember listening to it and being like, oh, there it is. And then I was, I saw it on this album and I was like, but I did, did we... I did re-record it for the record. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. So, I mean, if you go back and look, because the one that I released a few days after is just me and a guitar in a noisy hall, hallway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I kind of liked because I, I wanted it to sound like Dallas was still alive and walking around. Because mm-hmm. depending on where you lived, it was like super... 
like the world had ended. Yeah. And then in other places of Dallas, it was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was especially because there were some... The weather was great outside. What do you mean? Yeah. Especially, for a walk last night. It was especially weird because you would go to some neighborhoods and you would see a perfectly sound, totally untouched, normal building next to an entirely decimated one. Yeah. And you're like... That's it's just it just never really crossed your mind. That's how tornadoes work. Yeah. That it's like it touches something and it just des- it destroys it. And then but it doesn't touch something. And, and then fine. that's it. Yeah. It's it was just it's so weird to see. Yeah, absolutely. The difference between the two recordings actually there's a pretty good segue into my next question, which is, what do your live concerts look like? Because you. You record with plenty of layers and plenty of sounds, but it sounds like you perform by yourself, yeah? Yeah, a lot of the time it's by myself. So I I, um, recently, I guess because of the pandemic or whatever, we did a... um my, I got I got li- I got music videos for the first time. <laughs> oh, there we <laughs> Which go. Which was really crazy. Yeah. So I have like three real music videos for three tracks all of seasons little bit, and then um, we did a bunch of live take videos. Which are basically exactly what a live show is like if I'm the only one there. So sometimes I'll have some other people. I don't know if you guys knew like Jeff Tolis or Travis mm-hmm. Carroll. Mm-hmm. They frequently play with me. So they both, Travis came up from Houston. Uh, we just played a show on Sunday, all three of us oh, together. God, so fucking good. Guitar. So, um, and Travis actually plays a lot on this record. Um, he sings a lot. I had no idea. Me neither. I, I love that man. He is so talented. Travis Carroll's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And Jeff Tolis plays all the bass. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, because you're right. He's incredible. Um, and so we, we play shows together, um, but then I did this incredible uh, cinematographer, director guy, Jordan Gracie is his name, mm-hmm. just kind of came out of nowhere and followed me on Instagram, and I clicked on his profile, and I saw that he shot music videos and had worked in the video world for a long time, and so I sent him a message, and I was like, hey, do you want to do a music video? And he was like, I just found you on Bandcamp on accident. I loved your stuff, and I <laughs> wanted to friend request you just in case you wanted a music video. But like, yeah, I really want to. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I wow. sent him the whole record like a couple of months before it was really oh done. Oh my god! And he listened to the whole thing, and he had all these ideas for what he wanted to do. And so we shot the music video for Traffic, uh, and we went out to Rose. Why can I not? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Rosedale, but I don't. Uh, but you went to a town in Texas. <laughs> we went to a town in Texas. It was super cool when he like called the town square or whatever and they let us film there and like we also got to film at this um nineteen thirties speakeasy ruin. Like it's a super oh cool God. video. Like, it's very fun. And then he wanted to do more stuff and he wanted to do like a live take video. So he came over and set up all the stuff in my apartment. He had all these big lights and two massive cameras. And he was like, just go. And so I played a continuous set in one take of like 25 minutes and it was great wow and then that video is on YouTube now so you know oh my gosh so that if you really wanted to know what a live show is like that's it only there go go on it's there you can see it what determines the order of the song because <laughs> you, you brought up traffic and immediately reminded me that traffic is the, first, the first song, first song. Yeah. off of seasons of limbo but i am curious yeah. as to like why specifically is that your first song um, and then like for example uh goodbye covid19 is in the middle mm-hmm. and tornadoes in dallas is towards the end mm-hmm. and like so i mean obviously timeline wise it's Flipped, but sure. like so. But what brings you to your track list and the order of said track list? Um, so this is like the worst part 
about how I write because I don't walk into the project with an outline of what I want to cover, right? There's no manufacturing going on. Mm -hmm. So, like, you guys were talking about, like, something you said that was really funny to me about all I'll need, where it was like, but it's like, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, you're totally happy with it. And I was like, that's hilarious, because... When I first put the record together and I was trying out different orderings of the tracks and sending them to people, like, what do you think of this? And I'd send a different order to one person and a different order to another person and say, like, what, what do you think about it and why? And uh, almost everyone would be like, yeah, this, work, this works fine, this works fine. Just all I'll need is weird and it doesn't belong. And I was Fascinating. Like, huh. Dang it! Because <laughs> yeah. I was super afraid that that was true. Right. right. Because it's so different. Yeah. It is so different. It's the only track on the record that's keyboard. It doesn't even pretend to be piano. Like, it's yeah. actually keyboard. Yeah. And everything is a major seven chord. And there's a saxophone. And there's, like, this crazy bass line. And then, like, a string quartet arrangement of a hymn at the end. Like, there is nothing about this that is anything even remotely related to this, like, alt-Texas country, yeah. my name is Buddy Holly record that I've made. And um, yeah. so it really bummed me out and made right. me sad. And do you think that's because like it's towards the end of the record? Like it's I think it's a third to last song on the record. Yeah. That people have this expectation of what, the, uh, what else well, the record's going to sound like. Already established conventions. I the those ideas were all based upon bad orderings of the tracks. Mm-hmm. So maybe I don't understand your question. So I I. I think how I was like envisioning it is that when you send somebody the record, and I guess bold of me to assume that you were sending them like the track list of what we have now, no, right? No. Okay, okay. So no. they were hearing all I they, need. Yeah. So like on one of the listings, I put it second uh-huh. on the record, and the reason is it's a sibling track with the second track of my very first record, Intimatitudes. They have very similar song forms, and they both end with instrumental covers of famous hymns and um they're both about kind of traumatic uh unfortunate relationships my all i'll need happens to be about uh smu and the fact that i managed to find cynthia at a place as dismal as smu and uh hurt us which is the track off of uh intimate attitudes is about a really stressful unfortunate relationship with a strange family member that actually is now better so that's good that's good but um so i put it second because it was like oh they're both second that doesn't that totally doesn't work um there were a couple things that i knew like i knew traffic started it and i knew where are my people ends it i knew that i had no idea what the fuck to do with the rest. <laughs> and that was really sad because ultimately what you end up having to do is like put it all in a playlist and then just hit shuffle mm-hmm. and every few days yeah. shuffle it again and be like so that doesn't work at all. And then sometimes it's like uh, putting together a puzzle where like you can't like literally put the whole puzzle together. You put together like a section and then you like transport the section to inside. Yeah, because you know that works. So let's right. see what goes around. Right. So I like had my borders, which was traffic and where are my people, and I had to fill in the middle. And so some yeah. of that was these three songs work. Where do I put these three songs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it just so happened that the ordering just kind of happened one day. And I was like, I think it's this, but I don't know. Huh. And then I was like, nope, that's what it is. I'm done. It's done. That That's what it is. And then Travis wrote this incredible piece for a blog about the record and how he thinks 
the first half of the record is about like physical reality and the last half of the record is all about spiritual reality and how the last half of the record is basically just one long prayer and the first half is just kind of general lamentations <laughs> about having to yeah, live here. Yeah, sure. And um, so I was like, wait, there was like a purpose, and I don't even, didn't even know. Well, yeah. That's what I was doing, you know. That makes sense, though. That makes sense that, that it just kind of fell into, uh, that just kind of fell into place like that. And, and what, what, now that you're mentioning Travis, I am curious, who is your okay, break it to me person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, so I have two. Travis is one of them. Uh-huh. And then this other guy, Michael Minkoff, is another. And like Travis, but I have a lot of them. Do you guys know, right. Reed, do you guys know Reed Mulliken? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's one of them. Yeah. Didn't um, he just finish his like thesis or something? He just finished, I think he's finishing up his master's. All right, great. Okay, cool. For like vocal performance at TCU. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah. Um, and I have a bunch of other people that are just super harsh critics because mm-hmm. I would prefer to surround myself with those people Yeah. Um, because I'll just, I'll know. And so like, I always call uh, Travis my first, the first line of defense on keeping me from being mediocre because yeah. <laughs> he'll very kindly just tell me like, no. And, and sometimes it's like, no, it's too on the nose or no, that doesn't excite me or no. That's bad, and you're lazy. You know, <laughs> it's kind of great. Yeah. And then my other friend Michael is just much more savage about it. Where he's just yeah. like, "Why are you doing that? You know, and why did you do this?" And typically, he gets back to me after the record's released. <laughs> oh, Michael, you asshole! That's so. Oh, that's absolute agony. But it, it's it's totally fine because either way. I stand by whatever it was I did, and yeah. I can only stand by it because it's not the last thing I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. But like the album becomes sure. a time capsule. It exactly. doesn't become a, a whole identity of right. self. Exactly. It's just an identity of self at that time. time. That's a lovely, lovely way. Of, okay, I'm so glad you said that because, um, what is something about this album that you learned? <laughs> you know what I mean? What did you learn? What are you like? This is the next thing I'm building on. What's a note that you consistently have to yourself that you're like? I need to challenge myself in this way. I need to work with, with a studio. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to actually not just record my records in my room with yeah. one mic and garage band. <laughs> sure. Um, the, the, because they're, they're I ready think, to I think go. I've reached the, the kind of the end of what I can do sensibly that will still sound sort of convincing, especially yeah. as I'm starting to kind of grow a following. Like, yeah. I think, okay, now I need to actually start working with real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited about that, but it's also kind of scary because right. now right. it's kind of like you really have to put your money on it. And uh, whereas before it was like, well, I spent you know however much money on this microphone, but I definitely more than paid for it with itself. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of go into my bedroom whenever I have time and mess around. And it's not like I'm on the clock or paying for someone's time. I just do what I want until I'm happy. Right. And whereas with this, it's like if I work with a producer or even just recording engineers like when I go into the studio everything has to be on and ready to go right now like yeah. you gotta get it right now right and I'm, I'm accustomed to that pressure somewhat because I've done some um, studio work for other people and I'm, I'm typically pretty comfortable with it but 
it's just a very different thing to have to bring what is yours, a very intimate, vulnerable thing, into a space like that mm. where there is all that mm. pressure. So I think that kind of scares me, but I think it's necessary. So I, yeah. think, I think that's my main note. Yeah. Because yeah. actually, and, and the thing is, when you, when you have recorded and mixed and mastered it, by the time it's out, you hate it. Because you, you spent so much you time, to it so yeah. much, and you just you know which things just aren't they weren't quite what you wanted them to be, and they never were going to be. So you kind of were like whatever. And now it's been so long since I listened to it. I listened to it recently because two new pretty big reviews came out this week, mm-hmm. and I was like, whoa, these were really nice. Was it? Wait, was it good? Hold on. And so I like listened to it. And I was like, Wait, I think this is actually good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's another thing that I've f- found very interesting about like the trajectory of your career so far is that usually people have to build this enormous fan base before they can start getting any sort of critical success. And you, like, that's how I found you. And that's how I started listening to your stuff consistently is that I saw you started posting reviews or posting critics' notes and everything. And I started reading and I was like, oh my gosh, like, He's getting rave reviews from these people. <laughs> what the hell? Like, what is he? And then I Jonathan Hodges, he may not be bad at what he does. <laughs> oh, shit, no. But it was, it was fascinating. And you really have built up this reputation for yourself among pretty much all the critics as this, like, very intellectual, very yeah. heady, very t- t- type, of, type of musician. But I just have no fan base. <laughs> but no, I, I'm wondering, though. Did are you uh, flattered by that? Are you going for that? Um, I mean, it's really kind and really encouraging. <clears throat> for me, it, it it's like the fact that my nickname as a kid was Bometheus. Like I think some people, like a, particularly at SMU, like mm-hmm. I was a very um, I was the sort of person that split a room. You know, like there are people that either really like me. But they really don't like mm-hmm. me, you know? And the people that really don't like me, maybe I egged it on, and I probably did. Because <laughs> there's that own self-deprecating, like, I hate myself too, and I'd love it if you hated me more. Um, the people that don't like me, I think that they think I'm just trying to be as pretentious as possible. When in reality, I mean, sometimes that might be true, but I tried not to do that. And to some degree, this is really just how I think and process things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all these critics, you know, like super heady intellectual stuff. I guess, but it's just that's just who I am. I don't know. Um, like it's weird to like hear that as a compliment, as mm-hmm. opposed to like yeah, as a like, fact sure. of just my derision. Being... Yeah, it's just or, or just like that guy is so intellectual. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. But there's like POV attached to that statement where it's just like. Why can't that just be what it is? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I guess for me, it, it, it doesn't really mean anything to me. I'm just yeah. kind of like, oh, okay. And then, but, so when they use adjectives like that, I don't really want to engage with that. But then when they start describing what it did for them, yeah. then, then I'm like, whoa, that's, wow, I'm, that's why I did it. Yeah. You know, like I, I said in some interview with some uh, platform called Quadio, they were like, so why do you do it? Because you really don't have a following. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I never got into this for the money. I, I'm strictly here for the tears. Yeah. And to um, elevate the quality of my listeners' suffering. And that's all I want. 
Success. <laughs> That's yeah. such a good sound bite. So if other people to elevate the quality. Uh, okay, yeah, of yeah, your yeah. Suffering. yeah. Yeah. And so if other people are crying, I did my job. Yeah. That's all I want. Yeah. I don't care about it. So when they have all these adjectives, I just skip. And then when they're like, this made me cry. I'm like, yeah. yes! <laughs> but and that is, just like you said, and to wrap back around, just like you said, that is a very Kierkegaard respect, yes, that perspective. exactly. Where it's like, you're going to be suffering anyway. You might as well enjoy it while you're here. Let's play yeah. out a theoretical scenario then of like, let's say you write this record 10 years from now or five years, doesn't matter. And then every single song tearjerker right and then everybody is crying for every song and you hit that magnum opus you hit that high do you think and this is just you know theoretical scenario do you think that afterwards you would try to go back and get that high again or do you think okay so i got that i'm gonna take now my path completely different trajectory no it's <laughs> so. like there's not a top to this mountain it just no, keeps really, going yeah, up I, yeah because um well so it's it's a funny thing because and this is something that critics point out but it's also something that i've it seems self-evident to me which is that every record's better than the last yeah and that's been true for all of my records which i mean it's kind of a rare thing like you don't really get that with very many bands Mm -hmm. really don't um, so for me it's kind of terrifying that I'm doing that because <laughs> then there's an expectation yeah right right, 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 right. this one will be better yeah. than the last and uh, that is really scary especially when you put them out one year at a time you know like you don't and really you're like oh now there is a timetable on me being better than yeah. I was a year ago. <laughs> right, 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 right. oh god yeah and so um, whenever I do so like sweet nothings did pretty okay, and they got like a perfect score from Atwood Magazine, and they're the guy that writes for me there. It's like a New York-based national, mm-hmm. and really big deal. Like the only reason the guy even listened to my record was because I tweeted at a writer. <laughs> I was like, "Hey, do you accept submissions from unknown people?" And he's like, "Sure, lol." And then I sent it, and he's like, "Wait, this might be the best record I've ever heard." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> oh shit! There we Who, go. Me? Yeah. Well, right. it wasn't even that. I was like, wait, no, don't say that. It's only my third record. You know? yeah, it's like, no, no, we're trying to build here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. That's sweet, but... Yeah, and so um, it was kind of like, wait, but it's... And so I read it, his review, and I was like, but that's not... We're really trying to do more things. Like, I, this isn't the end, you know? Don't say it's perfect, because yeah. it's not. Like, it totally right. isn't. Yeah. And then... But, like, if it's perfect, then, like, okay, I'm done as an artist. Like, exactly. I don't need to grow anymore because exactly. I'm finished. And also for listener expectations. Like, stand-up comedians always talk about how the worst thing you can say is talk about how funny a comedian is before they come on stage. Exactly. It's like, oh, the genius, the funny, the talented, the yada yada. Then everyone's expecting that. And the second that you're not that, they hate you. Exactly. It's like, ah, oh, crap. Right. Yeah. Don't do that. Right. So, like, if someone writes me a review, tell me what you didn't like. I kind of want yeah. to... Yeah. Yeah. But also... Especially if you're known for being, like, reputable exactly. music critics. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, it, it, I don't want to sound like some, um, you know, like, totally pampered brand. It's like, man, give me a 10. I, oh, man, I just can't. <laughs> oh, my life is so hard. <laughs> it's not that. No. It's just, you know, oh, man, what? how do you go on from yeah. this, you know? Um, so, for, with your question, you know, five years from now you read this... I'm thinking about that all the time, mm-hmm. you know, because people will say, you know, like, this really, this was it. 
And then, and, and so like working on the record with Dave, the reason we did the record, there were quite a few, I wrote a whole blog post about it, but, um, one of the reasons is because Dave had a really unhealthy view of his own creativity. Like really unhealthy. Like he would write a piece, like he would arrange some choral piece or something, he'd walk away, take a break, come back, and be so disgusted by everything that he'd seen that he'd print it off, he'd reformat his hard drive, completely delete the file, take what he'd printed off, and light it on fire. Oh my god. Like, it's, like he actually did this. Wow. Like, it sounds like a joke, but he actually did this. And it was not performative. This is something that he did this is something he really for did. himself. Yeah. yeah. To protect wow. the world from his, his atrocious ideas. I'm terrified. So it's really yeah. sad. He writes really good poetry. And he had written a poem called um, A Amazing Tonic. Uh, Dave has also done basically every drug on the planet. Uh, and he has a very uh, storied past. Sure. Uh, today, he is a structural engineer with a degree in aerospace engineering. He owns his own firm, has nine children, doesn't wear shoes, is aggressively Roman Catholic, and only listens to metal. And that's Dave. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also burns his poetry. Yeah, burns his poetry. Also burns his poetry. Oh, his music, yeah. And so he'd written this poem about a drug called AMT, which is like the queen mother of psychedelics. Uh And uh, it was particularly um, uh, in vogue in the 90s. And um, he had a lot of experiences on this drug. And so he and a buddy of his who has since passed away... Um, decided to both write what they call initialistic acrostic poems, which I think it's only their thing. Like, I don't really think anybody else has ever done this. Yeah. So the way it works is, is the drug is called AMT. Amazing. So, like, yeah. Got it. And the whole poem is written that way. Three words at a time. AMT. Every three words begins with wow. AMT. Ask me tomorrow about my things, about my... And it just wow. keeps going like that for two pages. And it never, ever diverges from this. And it still manages to take you on quite a, an impressive story. Trip, so to say. I'm done. That's so good. after Sweet Nothings, you know, that review happened. And, I was, and we were talking, I was talking to Dave. And around that time, Dave and I had started just talking about nothing quite frequently. And it was really great. And when I was a kid, Dave and I were just great friends. He was like one of the few adults that would really take me as seriously as I took myself. You know, because I was the sort of kid, like at church, if an adult like got on his knee to talk to me, I'd get on my knee to talk to him. Because I didn't realize that the reason he was doing that was because I was small. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I guess we're doing this. And like, I, afterwards, I'm like, why did you do that? And I was like, I thought he, that's what we were doing. I, don't know. I, I, think it was, I thought it was a knee conversation. You're right. Yeah. It's a that's knee conversation. good. And so Dave was the only one that took me as seriously as I took myself. We would, he taught me to play chess. He taught me to play pool. Like, we would just hang out. He'd tell me, like, what was wrong with the theology I was being taught at school and which questions to ask my Sunday school teachers that would just make them insane. And that was our friendship. And so then we kind of rekindled it, you know, after I transferred to SMU. And um, at some point, I was like, you know, I, it's gotten to the point where I haven't had a good idea in a really long time, and I'm kind of worried about it. And he was like, okay, well, I have this poem that I wrote when you were about three years old um, about this drug, AMT, that I had a bunch of experiences on. And I've always kind of tried to set it to music. I've worked with a few other musicians. It just never worked. 
So what if I sent it to you and you could see? And I was like, yes, this sounds amazing. Yeah. And he was like, okay. And he hung up and then he never sent it to me because <laughs> he was terrified. And so I bugged him and texted him about it a bunch. And then finally he sent it to me and like the, the subject line was like, I should never have sent this to you. And then he sent it to me like radio silence. And I read it and read it and I read it to Travis and I read it to Reed because they were my roommates at the time. And, uh, and everyone was like, yeah, it's a really good poem. It totally doesn't need music. And I was yeah. like, damn it. And then I, like, when, typically when I'm writing, I'll um, take out my phone and hit record so that whatever idea happens in the moment, I have it exactly as it was. Because the worst feeling in the world is when you have some minute portion of inspiration that is there and then it evaporates. You can't remember what the fuck it was. Right, right. <laughs> so... I took it out, and I still have this recording, and I read the whole poem out loud, and I just kind of meditated on it, and then I, like, read the title, Amazing Tonic, and I was like, tonic, tonic. Well, in music theory, tonic is just the first pitch in whatever scale, mm-hmm. and so if you just have tonic maze all the time, where it's, like, going in between different keys all over the place and doing all this stuff, then... Then you could. Then it works. Then it's this. It's, it's, it's exactly right. how it works. And so, like the melody immediately happened, and then the chords like just happened, and the way that they're all kind of sort of connected. And mathematically, it's also making sense, right? It's so exciting. And so I like had the idea, and I recorded it that weekend, and I sent the demo to Dave. And I hear nothing from Dave for many days, and then finally he calls me. He's like, "I'm really sorry." I, uh, I avoided your calls and didn't answer anything. Um, I listened to what you sent, and I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> and wow. so, oh, for me, oh. Like, that's my favorite sentence ever. Right, right, right. But also, it's like, whoa, okay, I think like this is really cool, because it's fine. Like, Dave is willing to admit that his art, like what he created, can actually be used to make, like, he can contribute to something that could make him cry. Right. right. And um, that's the only song where I didn't touch the lyrics at all. I did nothing to them. Mm-hmm. I actually just sang his poem. And so a couple nights later, I was hanging out with Travis, and he had listened to it, and he was like, it's awesome. And I found this photograph of Dave and I hanging out when I was three, mm-hmm. and he like it was around the same time that he actually wrote the poem, and we're both making this really silly face, and that's the cover of the record. Mm-hmm. It's a picture. And so Travis was sitting, and he was like, what are you guys going to do with it. And I was like, well, it'll just be like a silly single. And I have this photograph I just found of us. And so that will be like the cover. And it'll just be like a strange, like whatever, because it's a super out there song, particularly for my genre. Sure. And, uh, and then he was, he looked at me and he's like, you guys should write an album. That's what Travis Carroll said to me. And I was like, yes. And I called him <laughs> immediately. And Dave was like, this is Dave. And I was like, uh, I, I was just talking to Travis about the song. He thinks we should write a whole record. And there was complete silence. And Dave, like, breathes in the way he does when he's really nervous and not sure about what's happening. And he was like, give me 15 minutes. And he hung up. And 15 minutes later, he calls me back. And he's like, okay, I'm in. Let's do it. What were those 15 minutes for? I know. So he could, I don't know, beat himself on the back or something. <laughs> light another piece of paper on fire. On fire. <laughs> right, right. And, and then he got in and he was like, but listen, tomorrow I'll hate myself about this. So you have to hold me to it. And I was like, okay, yeah, it's fine. And so I made a Google Doc that night. And he lives in Dallas, Georgia, and I live in Dallas, Texas. And so we wrote it in Dallas. Oh, and, nice uh, so we just uh, spent, like, I think 30 to 50 pages writing about 
the experiences we had had. We both had experiences with psychedelics. We both had experiences with Kierkegaard. We both had experiences with um, really dogmatic, destructive Calvinism. We both had experiences with what it was like to be a child and have wonder and then to lose it. Like So all this stuff, we had all these similar... Mm-hmm. just. And, but it wasn't like one of us had like um, influenced the other to have it. Yeah. Like neither one of us were like, read Kierkegaard. Like we just both had found Kierkegaard or Kierkegaard had found us, you know? Mm-hmm. And like we had all this stuff in common. And so we, I think in total, we had like 10 song ideas that kind of got whittled down to eight. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a much shorter record in terms of the amount of songs, but it's still, you know, 40 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how that record came. Why did we talk? Why am I telling you this? (laughs) I'm so interested, but like, was that then the most rewarding experience for you as an artist? In some ways, yes, because at the end of it all, after it was done, Dave finally listened to the whole thing, and he called me, and he was like, this is the greatest gift I've ever received from anyone. And I was like, wow. And then he was like, and I've started writing again. <laughs> like wow. he started doing yeah. art again, and I was like, "Wow, that's so awesome!" That's the pinnacle. That's we it. Did that? Yeah. We did this? That's so cool. And it's like this cool, like family heirloom of like, yeah, this is that's huge. Something we did together. And oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. What it must have meant to the rest of your family, right? Like Man. we all like have this thing that they. Yeah. Made. Right. Um. So I mean, but so oh okay now I remember how it all kind of works into what we were talking about. Dave, going into it, was like, you know, every record you've put out is better than the last. And I think this one might be the best one. And I was like, well, it's definitely the best one so far. And uh, and then Seasons of Limbo came out. And I like, I think Seasons of Limbo is a better record than Inadequate, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and I'm sure that, that was, have you told Dave about that? Oh, so we talked about it right. for a long time. And he was like, I just, I took me so, he listened to it so many times and he like, it took me so many times to actually hear it mm-hmm. because inadequate is so big <clears throat> because mm-hmm. Dave listens to metal. Like he likes big things. And yeah. So he yeah. went big. Like we have a track on there that's, it has like, if you want to talk about genre like changes, like this mm-hmm. track called the machine, the machine is about leaving Calvinism, but it's, <laughs> it's seven minutes and it covers every genre you can think of, from like noir jazz to like, uh, like carnival horror, Tom Waits <laughs> to Gregorian chant, back to carnival horror, Tom Waits to Muse to like the most worshipful, oh, the most important Muse, and then worshipful music yeah. like you've never like it's sacred music is what it ends up. and like all that happens in seven minutes and it actually works like it actually makes sense. I call it Bomethian Rhapsody. <laughs> oh, you was that all a setup for Bomethian Rhapsody? <laughs> you had that hours ago. This has all been a ploy to get to Bomethian Rhapsody. All I wanted to say to. <laughs> No. Thank you, Lincoln. No. But um, for Dave, he likes big things. Yeah. And Seasons of Limbo is not big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seasons of Limbo is like my most intimate work to date, which yeah. is why I like it the most. Yeah. Since that's what I want. Um, it really is, yeah. But he told me he would go through the entire discography and listen from the first record all the way to Seasons of Limbo and then tell me what he thinks of Seasons of Limbo. <laughs> yeah, you're right. 
do you think there may be some year in the future where like you never land on like uh, a track list or a series of songs or you never get to the songs where I'm like, I'm happy with this work. I'm ready to release this work. Do you think, is that a possibility in your mind to you? That I would like slave over a bunch of stuff. and then But like actively back. choose then not to release it. Yeah. Uh, so at first, you know, I, I had a lot to prove and I really wanted to prove that I could be clever, you know, and, um, so with the early records, everything I wrote basically got released, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is horrible. Like, it was mm -hmm. a really bad way to approach anything. No, that's fair though. Because first drafts of that, the first draft of anything is probably garbage, mm -hmm. and I released a lot of first drafts, so I regret that. But it's also, like you said, a time capsule. Yeah. Which is also like the most infuriating thing about being a creator is that at any given point when someone comes along and tells you that they really love such and so work you really just want to show them what you're working on right now but oh, you can't yeah. because by the time they hear it you're already working on something right now that's actually better than that thing that you told them to listen to and yeah. talk there's nothing more heart-wrenching of, of an experience of going to a concert of somebody and they're performing a song that they wrote like 20 years ago and you're like and you think to yourself like you're still doing this like don't, do you still want do this like right and it feels like you're holding on yeah so that was a cool thing about so i saw muse live i don't really go to live shows i can't stand them they're sweaty loud and i just they're just not for me but i went and saw muse and it had gotten to the point where i didn't really like listening to them anymore because it just got old like i've heard this mm. you know it's just not not doing it anymore and i was interested to see if I would have the same experience seeing them live because the only things they're going to play are like their biggest hits which is all that anybody really listens to anyway listening to them live I'm convinced it's the only way that you're meant to like consume the band mm. the records are there just to get your attention so you go see them live because listening to them play the same songs I'd heard a million times live was like when I heard Muse for the first time it was that like mind splitting do you remember like yeah. how your brain was like oh what the this is all yeah music <laughs> you know? right right right. that was seeing them live yeah yeah, yeah. and it was just incredible what specifically do you think caused that experience? Let's say, what, what, is what, that? what about those live performances brought you to that experience i think um i think they actually want to be there mm. i think they want to be there and so yeah. just like having that emotion just radiate off of them, you're like, that. therefore, I want to be here too. But it's also like Muse wins awards every year for having the best live show out there, like internationally. Like they've just perfected like the way the lights and the screens, like it's just like the whole thing is just the most. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's just over the top. Like I hated music for a week after seeing them live. I'm not kidding. Like I you're saying that you, <laughs> I hated music for a week after I saw Muse live because you were never gonna find something as magical as and that. Yeah. My music was never ever gonna be that. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was never going to be sure. That. Even though that's such an unfair expectation well, of sure. yourself, yeah. But it was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, there's yeah, no right, way right. I could do that or make anyone feel what I just felt for like two hours straight. And then I told Dave, I was like, look, dude, because he was going to Lollapalooza or something. He goes to some thing every, every year. 
And he was like, I'm going to see Muse. And I was like, all right, look, dude, after you see them, you're going to hate music. I promise you, for at least a week. And he was like, okay. And he's like, look, I've heard, I've seen Radiohead, I've seen these other bands, right? Everyone's like, when you see this band, it will blow your mind. And he's like, eh, that's it, you know. And so he went, and he called me afterwards, and he was like, okay, um, that was completely different than anything I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, like, and it's simply the radiating quality of, like, let us, let us experience this right now. Yeah, that's crazy. And also, like... I think it's also mind-splitting that that much sound and that many complex lines are all happening just because of three, maybe four people. Mm. Like, they have a guy that helps them with the sense or whatever, but it's basically three guys, and they're creating all of the sound, and it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Why is Traffic your first song? Because I think it's really funny and really dark and very sad, and it sounds like Buddy Holly, and I think it introduces what the record is going to be the best, mm-hmm. which is we don't really love people until after. Okay, so like the reason I wrote the song was I was driving down seventy five and I saw this horrible accident. But before I saw the accident, someone had just cut me off and I was super mad, and I was like just weaving a tapestry of obscenities and cursing this man all of his generations, you know, the fifth and sixth. And then this horrible wreck occurs, and I was like, oh my goodness, that could have been me. That could have been this, I mean, why did I totally despise everything about this person and feel pity about, well, it's because I'm only thinking about myself. This guy inconvenienced me, and this guy reminded me that I could die tomorrow or right now. <laughs> and that yeah. feels bad and sad. <laughs> and then I was like, we don't love strangers until after they're victims. And that is the worst. Yeah. And so I wrote that song. But it, the song kind of has this happy feel. And it just goes along like this. Well, it tells you... Why I'm convicted and why we all should be convicted, you know, yeah. for having lived our lives this way. Oh, and so gosh, I thought it was kind of a fun introduction. Yeah. I think that's the perfect way to put it. I think and then, and that, that makes perfect sense now that, that I've heard that explanation. Total, I'm like, that, yes, yes, indeed. And that reminds me how all my, because I'm a teacher as well, all my students that I have, I've there's this infuriating thing that... Uh, for the first like half of the year that I w- was teaching them, I'm just like pulling my hair out because it's so annoying. But now it, it's like been starting to ma- it, it, it has started to make more and more sense. Is just like you said, we yeah we do not love people in, until they're they're uh, victims to us. Um, that also encourages people to be victims right. to, to gain love. Right. And so the first half of me teaching these middle schoolers, like that is, that is their strategy of getting people on their side is, uh, is, is, is the pity party is the, like, this is why I'm, I'm unique and yada, yada, yada and everything. And especially in theater, it's difficult. And then after a while I was like, Oh shit, this is how they talk. They, like, this is how they learned how to mm-hmm. gain respect and love. And you're like, oh man, that's really so sad. depressing to think about. Yeah, because it's very, it's very normal. It's very normal. That's so interesting. I need to go. And honestly, after this entire conversation, I'm obviously influenced too. I'm probably going to have to go back and listen to everything now. Now that I have the stories behind, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now yeah. that I'm like, oh, okay, different, different <laughs> mindset, different context. And I'm going to think about Uncle Dave and shit, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah. Let's start to wrap this up because we've been here for quite a moment uh, in time. Oh, yeah. But uh, Jonathan, aka Bometheus, <laughs> where can the people find you and assist you and help you out and really learn to love who you are? Uh, the best place is, is Bandcamp mm-hmm. um, because you can actually buy stuff there and they don't take everything. Uh, the worst place is Spotify and Apple Music. <laughs> because you get none of you it. You get basically nothing, yeah. Right. Um, so if you actually want to support me, um, yeah, please, please buy the stuff off of uh, Bandcamp. But, I mean, I don't really care about that. I, more than anything, reach out and, and tell me what you think and, and what it did for you. If it did yeah. anything at all. <laughs> hey, let's listen to your music. I felt nothing. Yeah. I'm never going to listen. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, dang it. Okay, great. Great. Can you tell me why? Yeah, yeah right. Can you tell me why? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, 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 but I own Bometheus on, on everything. So, nice. you look me up on any social media or... Yeah, Instagram at Bometheus. Mm-hmm. Facebook Twitter, Bometheus, right. Bometheus. YouTube Bometheus. TikTok Bometheus. It doesn't matter. Oh, new, new TikToker. I have a new TikTok. <laughs> It's mostly just me ripping on fundamentalists. Uh, so if you have a background there, or if you are one yourself and you want to be outraged by the internet, you can go there and watch that. Um, love to share that with you. <laughs> That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Well, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. It for was an me. absolute delight. This You're the best. This is a really, really fun interview. Seriously, I've done the best. Some sad interviews. This is a fun one. I'm glad it wasn't sad. I'm glad it wasn't sad. I'm kind of disappointed it wasn't sad. Well, because you yeah. guys actually asked questions that um, were indicative of the fact that you were interested in the conversation. Oh, and shit. And so I was having a conversation. Oh, no. Yeah, I did some that were, like, very formulaic. This is what I ask fill-in-the-blank bands. Mm. <laughs> oh, so you know, as opposed gosh. to, like, an exploration of person slash right. band slash character. <laughs> right. right. All right. <laughs> yeah, there's none of that. A shame. An absolute shame. You just get, like, really bizarre questions. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even mm-hmm. know. Do, do you want to just stop this interview and be like, I actually did this interview last week on this other platform. Uh, yeah. If would like to go see those answers, you'd like to go to, yeah. I mean, for a lot of them, yeah, it was just copy and paste. And you're like, okay, well, not this again. Yeah. <laughs> every time, man, every this time. This is... I'm glad, I'm glad. Well, then we'll have to invite you back for the next album. Oh, next year, which is going to be... great. Undoubtedly better than the last. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you. No, no, we're excited to see what happens to you. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to reach out again and have you on again. That's thank so you so great. much. And thank you all for listening. Yes, thank you.